All right, let's get started. Good morning, good morning, good morning. I'm Kotz, I'm one of the pastors here. We are in a series called Center Set Church. Uh, we're reevaluating what a church is and how Jesus meant it to be. And for the past few weeks, we've been talking about what church has become. And the church has become what we like to call the temple model, which is, you know, sacred people creating a sacred space, drawing sacred lines, determining who's in and who's out. And we said that that's not exactly what Jesus wanted. He wanted something where it was a more open invitation, where all people are welcome. And so last week we looked at something called a set theory. It's a theory that some uh, really smart people, way smarter than me, came up with. And I just want to review what those, those three models in the set theory, and maybe you could relate to one of the three. Um, the first one is called bounded set. Bounded set is basically the word bounded, you know, as in boundaries. If these Dots for people, bounded set basically means that we draw lines around ourselves saying, this is who we are, and if you don't fit this, then you're on the outside. Okay, so if, I'll give you an example. And sometimes it's like well-defined lines, other times it's just an unspoken code in a community. So the first time I went to church, I was invited by a friend, yippee, right? And by the way, it's easy to get inside the lines if you're invited by a friend. If you're not, you're just trying to figure out what the rules are. You're looking around thinking like, oh, this is how everybody's dressed, so I need to dress a certain way. Oh, this is when everybody sings, so I need to sing with them. And you have to kind of fit into the mold to make sure that you're within the lines. Uh, sometimes it's not about dress code or the language you use. Sometimes it's just your beliefs, right? So you're like, oh, what kind of church is this? Oh, they, they believe in these things, so I need to align myself with this church or else I'm on the outside of the lines. This is bounded set. So when I went to church for the first time, I remember thinking, okay, I need to act like everybody else. I need to sing like everybody else. I have to use language like everybody else. And, you know, Christianese was brand new to me back then. So I'm like, oh, these people use words that I usually don't hear outside the church. I need to learn the lingo here. Bounded set, okay? And I think majority of people in America think, when they think about church, they think bounded set. And sometimes you even ex excommunicate yourself, right? You're like, I did something that I'm shameful of, and therefore I don't belong in this community anymore. And so you, you drew a line for yourself, or you're assuming that the community has a line, and now you're on the outside of it. If you've been hurt by the church, chances are it's because of this model, okay? And one of the, some of the dangers of this is that the people on the inside feel this sense of superiority over the people on the outside. Sometimes uh, you, you get excited about excluding people who aren't like you. Other times you feel shame for not fitting into the mold. Other times it's hard for you to be authentic because if, you, if everybody here were to know who you really were, then you'd be on the outside of the lines, right? And by the way, the honest truth is nobody belongs on the inside of these lines. Everybody's pretending to act. It's, it's, it's sociologically, it's like, Really interesting if you study this stuff. So if you've been hurt by the bounded set, then you say, you know what the problem is? The problem is the, these lines. So we introduced to you the fuzzy set. Remove the lines, everybody's in. But we learned last week that when all are in, then there's no identity, there's no direction, right? We use the illustration of baseball, where if you go to the field, the bounded set, like you went through tryouts, you pay the fee, you prove that you belong in that area, you know, you have a certain level of skill, you play by the rules of the game, bounded set. If you're not gonna play by those rules, you're on the outside of the lines. But fuzzy set is basically saying, all are welcome, so inclusion, that's good, you solve that problem, but you create way more problems because you know, people come to that game and they're playing by their own rules. Sometimes they're not even playing the game, they're like, I'm just here to play soccer. On a baseball field, it's like, yeah, don't judge me. You know, all are welcome, right? So there's the lack of identity in the fuzzy set. 
So we look through the scriptures and we discover that Jesus, when it came to his ideal version of what a community should look like, it doesn't look like a bounded set. It doesn't look like a fuzzy set. It looks like this. It's called centered set. Centered set is basically there's no lines. There's no lines. But the way that people find identity and direction is that we're all focused in the center, whoever that center is. In this case, it's Jesus. And you could be all over the place. Some people are all the way out here. They're just starting the journey. They're far away, but they're like, I'm curious. I, I heard about this Jesus thing. I just want to know more about it. Some people are way further along in your journey, but nobody has arrived. Nobody has the right to say, I'm superior because I've been here for longer. Because everybody's on a journey. Some people are better at praying. Some other people are better at reading the Bible. Other people are better at spiritual direction. Everybody's different. And we're all helping each other, trying to move towards the center. And there are times when there are people who are close to the center, but they are, are turned away. They're like, you know what? I don't want to be here right now. And that's okay. That's the season in your life. No one's here to force you into this journey. So if you were to categorize these three different sets, uh, here they are. We have bounded set, fuzzy set, and center set. The bounded and fuzzy set are both, they all have to do with lines. So here we go. Next slide. There we go. They all have to do with lines. Okay, you either draw a line or you erase a line, right? So if you have a bounded set church and you're like, hey, you know, if you want to be a part of this community, you have to abide by certain rules and you realize, ah, oh, you know, the church is getting small. Let's erase the line and make the circle bigger or let's, let's double down on that line and make the line thicker, right? Um, so it all has to do with lines, either drawing lines, reinforcing lines, or erasing lines. Center set church doesn't even deal with that category. They're like, lines? What's a line? <laughs> like, boundaries? What's, what, what, right? They actually deal with direction. Which way are you going? And by determining which way you're going, that determines if you want to be in this community or out of this community. Now, you're like, well, how are we supposed to know which direction their hearts are pointed? We don't. We can't, we can't, I can't just look at you and say, well, you're clearly pointed the other way, right? There's no way you could do it. So this is a lot more messy right? But I think it's more Christ-like. I think it's more the model that Jesus wanted us to follow, right? So when you think about the, the, the center set model, Jesus is in the middle, right? And everything determ is determined by who Jesus is. So the, question, the, the, the thing that we have to look at is this. Next slide. If Jesus is the center, we must define Jesus. Because if I were to say, hey, who, what is the center of your church? Every church in the world is going to say Jesus, but we look around the world and we realize, but there's so many different types of churches. Like, how did that happen? Did everybody define Jesus differently? And the answer is kind of yeah. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the character of Jesus. If we're going to live by this center set model, we have to define for ourselves who Jesus is and what he held as values and what he didn't like and what he, you know, all that stuff. So the question today is this, is Jesus more concerned about lines or direction? Is the center set church actually biblical? Is Jesus really like into this whole thing? Like, is Jesus about drawing lines saying, sorry guys, you don't belong in my group because you don't act a certain way or you don't believe the right things or you didn't vote for the right person or because you, you, know, you dress a certain way. Or is he more like lines? What lines are you talking about? It's all about direction. So we're gonna go through a lot of stories of Jesus and I had to take down a few because I realized we have a society meeting today so I have to shorten it down. Um, but I was like thinking, let's go through the first 15 chapters of Luke. 
You know, I would like that. You wouldn't. I would love that. So um, we're just going to go over three stories and then one last story. And uh, in these stories, you're going to come across this one character. They're called the Pharisees. It's not one character. It's like a group of people called the Pharisees. Next slide here, Pharisees. In case you're new to the Bible and you don't know who the Pharisees are, uh, I just want to give you a quick overview of who they are because they show up in most of these stories. Pharisees, uh, I think we have, like, they get a really bad rap because they, you think they're evil people. They're not evil people in case you, know, you grew up in the church and you always knew that the Pharisees were against Jesus. They're not evil people, okay? They actually had the same goal as Jesus. I don't know if you knew this. The Pharisees wanted the same thing that Jesus wanted, okay, which is this. Their goal was heaven on earth. You're like, really? Yeah. So in their minds, when they hear the word heaven on earth, there's like a list of things that they're thinking about. First, they want to know, like, what's going to happen to me after I die, okay? The second thing they wanted to know is, you know, sure, what's going to happen to me after I die, but also, I want to know what's going to happen to me here while I'm still alive. Like, it's, you know, like, good news is good news, but is it only good news after I die, or is it still good news even today when I'm still breathing, right? And the third thing is they were very patriotic, and so they wanted to know, like, when is, you know, when is God going to make Israel great again? This is like their big mantra. It kind of sounds familiar to something else, right? But they wanted to know, like, like Israel is God's chosen, chosen nation, and it doesn't feel like it because, well, there's some obstacles. Obstacles, right? Like, they're like, you know, if this is really God's chosen nation— it doesn't feel like it because a long time ago we were our ancestors were slaves to Egypt, and then after that the we found our land where we are right now. But the Syrians came in and invaded us. The Babylonians came in and invaded us. The Persians came in and invaded us. The Greek came in and invaded us. And now there's this occupation by Rome. The Rome occupation is happening. There's these bullies that are walking around with swords and shields and helmets and breastplates, and they're like. They're treating us like less than human. Are you sure we are the chosen people of God? And so they're always praying, God, we want you to bring heaven on earth, bring heaven on earth, bring heaven on earth. But we can't because the Romans are here. And so they thought, like, why would God allow these bad people to be here? And then the Pharisees, they came to this interesting conclusion. It's probably because of these people, the sinners among us. We are such bad people that God has allowed these bullies to come into our land and take over our society. And they're like, wait a minute, these aren't two separate problems. Next slide. It's actually, this is the problem, the Pharisees would say. The Pharisees are saying, if we could solve this problem, the sinner problem, then God would have no choice but to get rid of the Romans because he'll be like, Finally, you guys are behaving. Now let me uh, crack my knuckles and get to work making sure that Israel is the greatest nation, bring heaven on earth. And, you know, like, they're like, this is the problem. So their solution, okay, and I think you guys know where I'm going with this, is this. Become pure. If we could get our act together, if we could start behaving the right way, if we could start following all the commands in the Old Testament that he gave us through Moses, if we could do all that, God would have no choice but to bless us. So what did this lead to? This led to drawing more lines. You're sinning. Repent. No, that we're going to draw a line and we're going to push you out. And maybe if I push you out far, far enough, God would say, 
Well, you know, before there were some sinners and really good people mixed together, so I couldn't really do my thing. But now that all the bad people are over there and all the good people are concentrated over here, now I could bless this section here, right? So like, let's draw lines around us to make sure who's in and who's out. And the people who are out, as soon as they're gone, I will start bringing heaven on earth to just those people. That was their mentality. And I think in a way, some churches still think that way today, right? Like, oh yeah, you know, this is a holy community and... Um, and by the way, the way they define holy is separation from the sinners, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago. Okay, so that is what you need to know about Pharisees. The Pharisees were obsessed with drawing lines because it's not for evil purposes. They wanted God's blessing. They wanted God's will to happen here on this earth. And the way they decided to do that is by pushing out the people who were bad or try to correct them. So they were like police, you know, like, they're like I, I smell some, some sin here. <laughs> Like, okay, you, yeah, you, yeah, you're sinning. Uh, repent? No, you can't? Okay, then you're out. Just go keep walking, keep walking until I can't, okay, good, right there. Stay there, don't ever come back. And so they will always draw these lines, okay. So that's what you need to know about Pharisees. So let's look at the first story. This is Luke chapter five. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Okay, quick note about tax collectors. There were sinners and then a few steps down, there's tax collectors. They had a whole category to themselves because they said, there are really bad people as sinners, and there's even worse people called tax collectors. So in this story, there's a tax collector by the name of Levi. Jesus approaches him. Next verse. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Notice, follow him. This is a relational term. It's a directional term. Jesus didn't show up and say, Now follow these rules or change your lifestyle. He says, just come follow me. Very interesting. I know we've seen this, some of you have seen this verse many times before, but I just want to focus on the fact that what Jesus called called Levi to do is a directional thing, right? He's pointing at a theology. He's He's not pointing at a theology, he's pointing at a direction. He's not saying, if you believe in these things and pray this prayer, and if you read the Bible and memorize these verses, then you can come follow me. No, he does the other way around. By the way, 12 disciples, most of them, maybe all of them, didn't have the right understanding of theology when they were following Jesus. Maybe we got the order backwards, right? Let's keep reading this story. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. So now Jesus said, come follow me. And Levi says, hey, I want to invite you over to my house. So Jesus is like, I'll follow you. So he goes over to his house. And what kind of friends does tax collectors have? Well, he's been outcast, right? So his only friends are other tax collectors. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them, which is a big no-no. Jesus, there's a line. You were on the inside. If you go over eat with if you go over there and eat with the tax collectors, you're crossing that line. You're not supposed to be over there. That's for the people that God's going to condemn, right? Who are the tax collectors of today, by the way? But, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, there they are, our favorite friends right there, the Pharisees, who belong to their sect, complained to the, his disciples, why do you, Jesus, eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Their words, the Pharisees, are extremely line language. I don't know, line bounded set language. You get what I'm saying. Whereas Jesus' words are always directional and relational. Do you see the difference here? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He's like, if there are people who are sick over there and the doctor's over here, 
would it be, make sense that the doctor stays on this side and the sick stay over there? It's like, no, the doctor goes over there and helps them, right? Um, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Now, this is the New International Version, NIV Bible. There's different versions in the Bible. I love the message version of the Bible. This is how Eugene Peterson, he, this is how he interpreted it. I'm here inviting outsiders, inviting. This is, again, relational, directional language. Not insiders, an invitation to a changed life, changed inside and out. He's not saying change first, then come over, because then that'll be a bounded way of approaching Jesus. What he's saying is, come follow me, come invite, I'm, I'm inviting you over, and then maybe on that journey you'll, you'll discover that you shouldn't be the way that you are. Bounded versus directional. Jesus is concerned more about loving people than being bounded by cultural expectations. Jesus what are you doing? You're not supposed to be over there. There's a line. He's like, what line? It's all about direction. It's all about relationship. Next story. This is chapter six. One Sabbath, and by the way, quick note about Sabbath. Sabbath is the seventh day of creation. And so people believe that on that day, God rested. Therefore, we should rest also, right? But the question is, what does it mean to rest? Don't do work. Well, what's work? Um... I don't know, like going to work. Well, what about making food at home? Making food, you're creating something. Is that work? Yes. So this is some of the stuff that they had conversations about back then. And so these Pharisees believe that on Sabbath, if you want to be pure, if you want to be loved by God in a certain way, right? If you want to be on the inside of the circle, then you better not do anything on the Sabbath. On one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain because they were hungry. He, they rubbed those things together in their hands and they were eating kernels. In the eyes of the Pharisees, taking something, rubbing it together and eating it is creating food, which is work. So, some of the Pharisees, I don't know where they come from, by the way. They're just like, boom, like behind the grain, like, boo, hi, gotcha. You know, I don't know where they come from. They asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? This is why God is not protecting us from these bullies, because of people like you. They're drawing lines. If they would just step on our side of the line, God would bless us. Next slide. Jesus answered them. Have you never read what David did? This is offensive, by the way, because the Pharisees, all they did was read, right? Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He's referring back to the Old Testament. He's like, yeah, I'm sure you read these stories about King David when he was on the run. He had a bunch of his disciples with him, and they were like, looking for shelter, so they went into the temple, and they went in there, and then they were like, we're hungry. And remember how he just like took the bread that was meant for God, they started eating it? They're like, yeah, I remember that story. It's like, well, same deal. This is how he explains it. He, David, entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, bread that was meant for offering, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. It's like, it wasn't meant for them, but they ate it. And David, he also gave some to his, to his companions. Why? Because they were hungry. I know, it's a crazy idea, but if there's food that's not doing anything, and you're hungry, you should eat it, right? But to these Pharisees, it was more important that they follow the rules than it was to meet a need, okay? So then Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is the Lord of Sabbath. Like, look, guys. When it comes to Sabbath stuff, I know a lot about it because I am God. 
If you read on in chapter six, there's another situation that happens at a synagogue where there's somebody sick and Jesus wants to heal the guy and all the Pharisees are like, oh, this is the perfect setup. Like if Jesus heals the guy on a Sabbath, boom, he's on the other side of the line. And Jesus is like, wait a minute, is not healing somebody more important than the Sabbath? And he asks this question like, which is like, was Sabbath created for man or was man created for Sabbath? Like, can we get our priorities straight here, right? So Jesus is concerned more about meeting needs than obsessing over rules. He's not like, he, he's not about lines. There's the rule followers and the non-rule followers. Which side of the line are you on? And Jesus is like, no, I'm here to love on people. And sometimes loving on people means that I'm, all, I'm crossing lines. Because priorities, Right? Another story, chapter seven. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with them, so the, now the Pharisees are like, hey, let's bring Jesus into our turf, right? Uh, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, which is very customary for rich families, by the way. There was like a U-shaped, it's like with ang- two right angles, it's like a, it's like a U, but not curved, you know? It's a, it's a U-shaped table thing on the floor, and they leaned on their left elbow, and they ate with their right, and their backs were to the outside of the table. The servants would come into the middle of the table and serve food. That's, that's how it worked back then. And so people who are walking by would have to walk behind the people who are reclining and eating, okay? So they were doing that. And then a woman in the town who lived a sinful life, not exactly sure what that was, uh, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. This is a male-only table. But the woman's like, Jesus is here? Oh, I, I gotta meet this guy. And so she brings the most expensive thing she has, perfume. It's the most expensive thing, worth a lot. It's like, that was her retirement, basically. As she stood behind him, so she walked around to where Jesus was, uh, and behind him at, uh, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her, with, her, with her tears. That's a lot of tears, by the way. It's not like, okay, it's not that. It's like, <laughs> right? Like she is weep. She is crying. She's crying. Jesus, a river. Okay. Then, oh, I go back. Uh, then, what, did I read that part? Oh no. Then she wiped them with her hair. That means she had to put her hair down. Okay. For those of you who like hair buns, that's what they did back then, and they had coverings. To put your hair down was a big no-no in Jewish culture back then. So all these things that are highlighted here are things that women weren't supposed to do. These are the strikes that she went through, right? She stood behind him, wet his feet with the tears, which is a big, weird thing, right? And then she let her hair down and wiped his feet with her hair, kissed them, and by them, he's talking about his feet. And you're going to find out in the next few verses that they forgot to wash Jesus' feet. So he's, she's kissing like dusty feet that was crusty, but now kind of moist because of her tears, and she's kissing it, that's unclean, okay? And then she was pouring perfume on them. They're like, that's wasteful. This is the most expensive thing you have, lady. What are you doing, right? So the Pharisees are like, should we say it? Like, should we tell Jesus? Like, maybe I'll just say it to myself. So next verse. When the Pharisees who had uh, invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, like, you know, oh, self, This is what he says. If this man were a prophet, talking about Jesus, he would know who is is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner, line drawing, right? Jesus, in this world, there are two sides. People like us 
and people like her. If he was a prophet, he would know. If he's a man of God, he would know that she does not belong here and that she let her hair down and she's been crying on her feet and now is kissing and pouring something that's expensive that's a waste of money, right? To be holy, right, these people were assuming, the Pharisees were assuming, to be holy, to be blessed by God, they were assuming that people like her and people like us had to be separated so that God could judge them and God would bless people like us. And I love the next line. Jesus answered, well, <laughs> Simon, I have something to tell you. <laughs> when Jesus is like, yeah, yeah I, got a, I got a bone to pick with you. You know it's not going well. Okay, here we go. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? To, uh, you know, of course, she, yeah, yes, right? Next verse. I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. There it is. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You are so busy acting like you belonged here. There's nothing relational that you've done for me today. But this lady, everything she's done has been about being focused on me. And he continues, you did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. Like she wants to be with me. You, not so much. I'm not sure why you invited me here, but she definitely has demonstrated that she wants to be here with me. Next verse. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. What Jesus is stating here is this. All the things that a good host was supposed to do, they didn't do for Jesus. And so this woman, what he's implying here is, she was walking by, looked inside, because back then eating areas were like open concepts, so you could be walking down the street and see what's happening inside the house. She was walking by and realized that the person of honor was not being honored, so she came in with whatever she had, and she poured it on him. It's like, nobody washed his feet. I don't have any water. I'll use my tears. Nobody wiped his feet. I don't see a towel. I'll use my hair. Nobody put oil on his head, which was a custom, custom thing to do back then. So I'm going to use the most expensive thing I have with me and pour it on him. Ever since I've been here, she has been treating me as a VIP. You have not, because you're so obsessed with lines. He continues, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. He's like, we're not about drawing lines here, guys. We're about love. Where is her love pointed? Towards me. And that's what matters. It doesn't matter. Like, you know, like what, like what you think is important is not what matters. What matters is her direction her want, desire for a relationship with me. That's what matters. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is concerned more about relationships than drawing lines. He wants to have a relationship. That's what Center said Church is. Whether if this is your first time and you're like, I don't know if I believe in this Jesus thing, but I'm curious. If you're curious, then you're pointed in that direction. And he's like, you're welcome. You're welcome to be here. You are invited into this community. Nobody is, has the right to draw a line in front of you saying, you have to act a certain way, dress a certain way before you could join our community. Now, the next one is gonna be your last story, and we're gonna do this a little differently, okay? But let's start the story like this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathered, gathering around to hear Jesus. So it starts off with directional terms, right? They're like, hey, there's Jesus, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's listen to him, right? Directional, centered set. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They're drawing lines, 
right? Do you see the, the contrast here? Now, from here on, if you read the Bible before, if you went through the book of Luke with us a few years ago, you know that in chapter 15, it's a story of uh, the parable of the prodigal son, right? Now, today, I'm not gonna show you the verse on the screen like we usually do and read it together because I found another version of this. There's a guy by the name of Dr. Kenneth Bailey, uh, if, if you've never heard of him. He's a, a scholar, he's a professor, but he, he teaches Old and New Testament, but not only does he do that, he committed himself to living in the Middle East and also in Israel and all these places so he could learn as much context as possible. So when he learned all the context there were in the prodigal son story, he decided to write the story from a perspective of a villager of the prodigal son. And he basically wanted to tell the story where he could infuse all the cultural context into the story. So, you know, the story is like, hey, you know, the other day I just saw like this father who was wronged by his son and, you know, like, and oh, by the way, this, when he did this, this is what that means in their culture. So he retells the story from a perspective of somebody like a bystander who's telling, gossiping the story to somebody else and also telling them what that means in their culture. So it's very helpful to understand this story from, his, from Dr. Bailey's perspective because it helps us understand the things that we don't see in the text, right? So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read to you his version of the story because I think in the way that he tells the story, um, you'll see a lot of the things that we might miss when we read the prodigal son story. So here we go. Bear with me, I'm not a good reader, so here we go. <clears throat> amazing things have happened, oh, sorry, amazing things have been happening in one family in our village. The younger son asked his father for his inheritance. Can you imagine? Have you ever heard of such a thing? What nerve, what disrespect. He might as well have said, Father, I wish you would die. Of course, we all expected the father to scorn the younger son perhaps disown him or stone him, just like it tells him to do it in Deuteronomy chapter 21. But instead, he gave his younger son the inheritance. Can you believe it? It also amazed us that his older son never intervened, or at least protested that he didn't want to have anything to do with his younger brother's actions and the disgrace he brought to the family. As news spread around, a lot of people were upset, and the younger son started feeling uncomfortable. So what do you think he did? We thought he would give the land back to his father, but he tried to sell it instead. Can you imagine selling ancestral land? The very land that, the God, that God gave to his forefathers? What will his father have to live off of when he's older? And where will his son raise his family? What will his children inherit? Such disrespect, so selfish, so inconsiderate. Trying to sell the land only made things worse for the son. Each person he tried to sell it to got angry and insulted him. He finally found someone to buy it, a merchant newly arrived to town. The son couldn't have felt, uh, couldn't have felt very welcome here after doing such shameful things, so he took the money and left town. He went to a Gentile land where he squandered all his money. Then a famine hit, and since he was a foreigner there, no one felt obligated to help him. So there he was, living in a foreign land, hungry and feeding pigs for a living. We've, we heard he was so hungry that he wanted to eat the pig's food. He'd obviously lost all his dignity. Just think, a Jew feeding pigs for a living and eating their food? That's ridiculous. 
The son was starving, but he knew that if he returned home, he would face the scorn of the village. After all, we had shamed him before he, before he left. How much more would we shame him if he returned in his degraded condition? He had blown his complete inheritance in a Gentile land. He must have been worried about his father's anger, and he certainly knew about the Kizaza, our custom of banishing someone who lost or sold family inheritance among Gentiles. He would have known that when he returned, we'd break a large pot of roasted nuts and declare, you are rejected from this community. Desperate, the son hoped that his father would give him a job as a worker so he could pay back the inheritance and escape the ban. But he didn't know if his father would even talk to him. And so he decided to apologize first in hopes that his father would listen to his request. So as he was walking home, he carefully crafted his speech. Father, he would say, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. He must, he must have wished there was a back way into the town, but our homes are all clustered together and our farmlands spread all around the village. I was one of the first to see him as he was a sight. He was dirty, thin, barefoot, wearing patched up clothes and looked like, that looked like rags. He walked with his head low, obviously, hoping that we would not recognize him. I was glad to see how bad he looked. I didn't want my sons running off like he had. We all started yelling at him, insulting him. You worthless pig. Leave our village, you foreigner. As the crowd gathered, people began the Kazaza ceremony to ban him from our village. But all of a sudden, people began looking down the street. His father was running. Yes, running towards us. We were all shocked. In our culture, men do not run. Older men wait for others to approach them. Running is for children, not elders. How shameful. Just imagine what he exposed as he was running, his robes flying up in the air. Then the father hugged and kissed his filthy son. While the son stood there in shock, we all shut up. We could not insult or ban the son while his own father was welcoming him home. In fact, his father was humiliating himself to stop us from shaming his son. Then the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He didn't say anything about being a hired hand, though. I think the father's reaction changed the son's whole perspective. He must have been amazed by his father's love and acceptance and grateful for the way his father has saved him from the scorn. Maybe he realized he couldn't bring about a reconciliation on his own or try to buy back this relationship from his father. He had done more than waste money. He hurt his father, so all he could do was ask for mercy. The father left no doubt he was accepting his son back. He responded by telling his servants to put on sandals on his son's feet, a ring on his finger, and put on a fine robe. Without a word of rebuke, the father covered up his son's filth and restored him back as his true son. He also told his servants to prepare a feast and kill the fattened calf, not even a lamb or a chicken, but the best choice meat. Then he told them to invite the whole village. I was glad to hear that. The father not only accepted him back, but he honored him and celebrated his return in the presence of the entire village. But that's only half the story. 
As everybody began to arrive at his father's house for the celebration that evening, I got to the house just as the older son was returning from his day of work in the fields. I paused to let him enter so that he could take his place as greeter at the father's party, according to our custom, but he stopped and asked the servant what was going on. The servant explained, your father is celebrating and welcoming back your brother. The older son turned away from the house saying, I'm not joining in the celebration. I deserve a party, me, not my brother. In our village, you never refuse an offer of food, but the older son refused his own father. He made a huge scene in front of the guests, which was a shameful thing for his father as a younger son's request for the inheritance. Then I saw the father look out the, look out the door at all the commotion. I expected the father to be furious and to put his older son in place for insulting him, but the father came out and pleaded with his son to join the celebration. For the second time that day, the father sought to restore a dishonoring son. But the older son continued to insult his father. He spoke with no respect, without using a title, as he yelled in his father's face, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. Once again, the father went out of his way to try to bring the older son into the family celebration, shaming himself for the sake of his son. He responded, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had a celebration and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and he has been found. So this is Kenneth Bailey's version of the story. And hopefully this story comes to life to you. But I want to focus on some of the things that were said in his version of the story. First, the story starts off with, we were like the sinners and the, and the tax collectors were gathering around Jesus, directional. And he was talking about how the son ran away, spent the money, and shamefully he was coming back as he was walking home, directional. The father ran towards the son as he was coming home, directional, relational. And the father honored him, relational. And then it says the older son turned away. The older son was saying, whoa, 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 I followed all your rules, lying. So I belong to be on the inside of the circle. This other son of yours who broke all the rules, outside the line. But the father says, no, 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 no. It's not about where you stand with in regards to these lines. It's about the direction you're facing. The older son turned away. He was close, but he turned away. The father came out and pleaded with him. Do you see the, the use of directional and relational terms? Jesus is obsessed with directional and relational terms, whereas it seems like everybody else is all about drawing lines. So if you look at the center set church diagram here, the younger son who ran away is probably this guy or maybe this guy, far, far away, but he just started turning towards Jesus and the minute he turned, turned and started facing Jesus, the father is like, I'm going to run to you. You're in. But I'm so far away. I did so many bad things. doesn't matter. You're facing me. You're in. Or the older brother, who's probably, I don't know, like this guy, close to the father, but he's turned away. And he's like, I refuse to join that party. 
Jesus is like, this party is open to everybody. But if you don't want to be a part of it, I'll plead for you to come and join us. But ultimately, that's your choice. So from this story in Luke chapter 15, I hope you notice that Jesus, oh, next slide, always used directional and relational language. In other words, Jesus is extremely centered set. Oh, next slide, there is. He's, he's centered set. Now, regarding this story that we just read, Dr. Uh, Mark Baker, who I'm basing most of my sermon based off of his work about the center set church, uh, this is what he said. Anyone in his culture would see, after telling the story of the prodigal son, see that the older son, although keeping the letter of the law, like he said, I did everything you asked me to do, Father. He did everything right, has done shameful things that damaged his relationship with his father. Dr. Baker here is recognizing, okay, that you could follow all the rules of the Bible and still be extremely far from God. Maybe you met people like this. They're like, I follow every single command of the Ten Commandments, but, but you're still a jerk, you know, <laughs> like, right? Like, falling rules, A plus. Relationally, D minus, F, you know, right? This is what he's saying. Like, the, this is a demonstration of, he's, remember, he's preaching this to, to um, the, 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 the sinners and tax collectors, and the Pharisees are standing around him also. And he's telling the story to let the Pharisees know, you guys are good at drawing lines and following rules to make sure you're inside the lines. But relationally, you're nowhere. You're pointing away from Christ, right? So he says this. Through the parable, Jesus tells the scribes and Pharisees, you are sinners too. You think you're inside the lines? If we were to follow you, we'll find out right away. If we find out who you really are, we'll find out right away that you don't, by, by your own rules of who belongs inside, this, inside the lines, you don't belong in those lines. You would be just like the people that you're scorning, right? It's like, you're sinners too. You guys are all the same. But like the father in the parable who comes out of the house to invite the older son to take part in the celebration, Jesus does not scorn or reject the Pharisees. He invites them to join him and welcome the excluded people, and welcoming the excluded people. He says, it's all about invitation. It's all about direction. It's all about relationship. You know, what's really interesting about this story is you never find out what happened to the older son, right? In this story, the story kind of stops ab abruptly. We're like, so wait, 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 Jesus, do we, is there a part two? You know, is it one of those movies where there's like, you know, this movie, part one, part two coming out next year? Is that, you know, it's like, no. The reason why Jesus stopped the story right there and then is because he's saying, the story, the ending of the story has not been written yet, Pharisees. You are going to write the ending of this story. You're the older brother. How are you going to respond to the father who ignores lines and just focuses on direction? Well, history tells us that the Pharisees actually did write the ending of the story. He took the father, told the father he was wrong, and crucified him. Let's continue what Dr. Baker says. Jesus expresses God's gracious welcome to everyone, the sinners as well as the Pharisees and scribes. Like, you may, you may crucify me, you may hate me, but my invitation is open to you as long as you want to be in my midst. Directional, relational. Jesus was invitational. And for that reason, and as the church who are supposed to be a representation of Jesus, then the church is also meant to be invitational. This is what it means to be the center set church. We're not here to draw lines. 
We're not here to say, because you believe in this, you don't belong in our church. We will never say, if you voted for this person, you're not a Christian. Never say that. Because you made these mistakes in your life, you don't belong here. We will never say that. As long as you're interested in following Jesus, or even if you're just curious about Jesus, you're always welcome here. And that's the church I believe that God wants us to be. Amen? All right, let's pray.